At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today I have uh, an old, very old friend, a man who's been alongside me all my scientific career, uh, and a great scientist, Roland Griffiths from John Hopkins in uh, Baltimore. So welcome, Roland. Good to see you looking so well. Uh, pleased to be here with you, David. And it is true, yeah, you and I go back decades. Uh, well, yes, I can tell people when I first met you, I came to John uh, Francis Scott Key, your research establishment, in 1985. And uh, I was kind of overwhelmed by the how much facility you had you know there was me in Oxford you know doing a single subject at a time you know in a little room which was my office as well and there you had these research wards and you had people with the addictions and uh, doing drug preference tests and and in those days you know you were absolutely you know the, the world leader in understanding the nature of drug liking and uh, and dependence and tolerance uh, tell us a bit about that, because you did, you worked in very many different uh, different drugs, didn't you? Caffeine and benzos and opiates. Do you tell us a bit about how you got, you know, how you started off in science. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Well, when you came in 85, we had already been at it for uh, more than 10 years there at Francis Scott Key, which was later to become uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, I was trained in psychopharmacology, University of Minnesota, really a behavioral pharmacology approach to understanding the nature of behaviorally active mood-altering drugs. And uh, my principal research focused initially was on abuse potential, uh, mood-altering drugs. And I had uh, a baboon laboratory at the time in which we did self-administration studies and drug discrimination studies. And then we had uh, human laboratories in which we focused on alcohol and sedative hypnotics and eventually a variety of other kinds of compounds. But we really became intrigued at bringing the methodologies of behavioral analysis uh, uh, for prediction of abuse potential of drugs in animals and humans and developing analog methodologies for assessing and predicting abuse liability of novel compounds. And that's where uh, our paths really crossed over mutual interest in the benzodiazepine receptor ligands. But we did a lot of work looking at mood-altering drugs and I had a special interest initially in sedative hypnotics, but that branched out to a variety of other classes of mood-altering drug stimulants and opiates and caffeine and, and nicotine. We developed good methodologies for looking at that, 
and predicting abuse liability. And then I got attracted to caffeine, partly out of my own use of coffee and the, and the contemplation about what it, what it was that led me to become a habitual user of caffeine and kind of recognizing that the factors at play there were similar to the factors that engender regular use of other substances. So we did a whole series of studies on, and are continuing those studies on caffeine and characterizing the withdrawal syndrome and the threshold for producing mood-altering effects, which incidentally is just incredibly low. It can be less than 10 milligrams, less than really just a sip of coffee that's actually producing detectable effects. And we've defined uh, essentially a caffeine dependence syndrome. And while that doesn't Mm -hmm. make it a dangerous drug by any matter means it's, uh, it sheds light on the mechanisms by which mood altering drugs can capture control and engender regular Mm -hmm. habitual behavior and, and difficulty that people have in quitting them. So, Roland, where do you stand on, on caffeine? Where do you stand? Are you there? Are, there are two groups, there are two camps, aren't there? There's the camp that say say that people keep using caffeine because they have withdrawn. They're treating treating the caffeine withdrawal, and then the others who say uh, caffeine actually is a, a a bit of a brain boost and it's good for your mood and attention. And so, people, it's not just using caffeine as a positive thing rather than just offsetting negative mood when you stop. Uh, where do you stand on those? Let's see. Well, it's both. Uh, In caffeine-naive individuals or people who are not using very much caffeine, then there's no question caffeine functions as a a stimulant. It looks like it has dopaminergic components to that. So it looks like a weak amphetamine-like or cocaine-like drug, elevation of mood. The interesting thing about caffeine and and the reason like nicotine, I think that cultures have uh, been open to adoption of it is that as you escalate the dose, you run into adverse effects that becomes mm. unpleasant, dysphoric. Mm-hmm. So the self-administration of both caffeine and nicotine is self-limiting. So you don't get runaway, uh, out of control behavior. However, upon regular use of caffeine, that is daily use of caffeine and probably doses anything above about 100 milligrams a day, you're now reaching threshold in which you are going to produce reliable withdrawal. Mm. And the kinetics of caffeine, the elimination profile, Mm. is ideal for low-grade caffeine withdrawal being in effect after a night of abstinence. So people who are habitual caffeine users are waking up under, under conditions of low-grade caffeine withdrawal. They're, they're not as alert, awake, uh, buoyant as they would be if they weren't regular caffeine users. But lo and behold, when they consume their first cup of caffeine, those effects are reversed. And so phenomenologically, it functions as this, as this great pick-me-up. And, and so, it's, so it's both. Both are operational. And kind of my personal sense of it is that um, unless someone has a condition that's, that is known to be exacerbated by caffeine use, such as 
insomnia or some gastrointestinal problems. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps they're thinking about coming pregnant. Um, you know, there, uh, there's no reason to not consume caffeine and unless one is just offended by the idea that part of the consumption is going to be driven by mm. suppression of a low-grade caffeine withdrawal syndrome. But given the low cost and the ubiquity uh, of caffeine and how it's woven into the cultural context of most societies worldwide, although they use different vehicles, uh, I, I see that it's just part of our culture. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think uh, I think I would agree with you. Things are never that black and white in science, are they? And uh, when people want to polarise, <laughs> <laughs> it's usually that they know there's something on the other side. But the other thing you were really famous for, and, and this this was uh, this is a lot of people won't know this, is you're trying to work out the uh, what you might call the street value of drugs by allowing people to take them in your in, in your laboratories and then finding out how much they pay for them. I always thought that this was this is the real. This is truly real world psychopharmacology. Do you want to explain to people how you do that, please? Yeah. So those were methodologies that actually kind of grew out of my training in behavioral pharmacology, where there the acid test of whether or not a drug had reinforcing effects—that is, uh, had the potential to engender future self-administration was defined behaviorally, whether people would self-administer the drug. So, you know, in animals, that's how we test abuse liability, and it's a, a very reliable way of, of doing so, and there's cross-species generalities, predictability about abuse liability of other substances. In humans, we started off doing drug self-administration work, but it's incredibly time-consuming. Mm -hmm and cumbersome and expensive to do. And at the time, there were liking questionnaires or euphoria questionnaires. And coming from a, a behavioral background, I had uh, an immediate aversion to those and, and, and more, more than I probably needed to have <laughs> and I've come around to uh, really valuing phenomenological reports, particularly in our psychedelic work. So I, I was looking for a behavioral analog of the motivation one might have to take the drug. And that's where we worked out uh, this methodology about street value, choosing different monetary values uh, over or in place of uh, getting another dose of compound. And it was, it's, it's a way, and, and that basic methodology now is widely used in behavioral economics, but it's very often now done hypothetically. People are asked, well, how much would you pay for this drug? Mm -hmm. But our initial foray into this was asking people to make real choices between drug and money. And there were... Yes, which would you rather have $20 yeah, or this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you received a drug today and tomorrow you can either have that drug again or $20, which, which do you pick? And there are a variety of variations of that, hmm. but, uh, you know, the most behaviorally grounded and principal way to do that is actually to have a consequence to make that choice come true. But that of course becomes again, expensive and time consuming. So there are 
variations of that mm. methodology and the most extreme forms are hypothetical variations of it and that's widely used in behavioral economics one of the things that was really interesting about your work was you were maybe the first person to begin to differentiate the reward value of different kinds of drugs working on the same receptor and and i remember at the beginning when there was the beginning of the concern about benzodiazepine dependence and abuse, you were showing that not all drugs that were benzos did the same thing or had the same rewarding value. Yeah, so, so we were interested in comparing different benzodiazepines. And I think the, the clearest distinction that we came up with is a drug like oxazepam, which is, uh, has a delayed onset of peak effects has less reinforcing effects, less abuse potential than uh, benzodiazepine ligands such as diazepam or alprazolam, which are relatively quicker uh, in terms of onset of action. The point was, from my perspective, that you're beginning to bring a more sort of nuanced approach to to the pharmacology of dependence and asking questions about it's not just about the receptor, it's about the speed of onset and the, and potentially even the the relative efficacy of the drugs at the receptor and that you know that more fine-grained analysis of psychopharmacology of addiction i think is is quite critical because there's been an enormous temptation i think from regulators and politicians to make it too simple and to throw everything into the, a, a pot called addictive the consequences of that have been you know science has suffered yeah, indeed. I mean, so many of the scheduling schemas will treat a drug as essentially being uh, having exactly the same risk profile if its pharmacological profile is similar. So anything that binds the new opiate receptor must have heroin-like addiction potential, which is frankly ridiculous. The pharmacology is, is yeah, much, much more complex than that. And of course, in some countries, we've seen, in my country, we've seen compounds which even chemically look like other compounds or are illegal even before they've been made. But, but, but that's another story. Let's get back to you and your, your research. Because and then you, you kind of changed direction a bit. You went uh, and really you know, pioneered the study of psychedelics from the, what, the late 1990s. Yeah, so, yeah, this is kind of... The- <laughs> following my own kind of curiosity. Uh, so about over 20 years ago, I started a meditation practice. And that got me really curious about the nature of consciousness, if you will, and spiritual experiences and changes in phenomenological states that I that I had no real prior exposure to. I mean, they... they Meditation opened up to me this world of classes of experiences that I kind of recognized as having something to do with these long-term meditation traditions, but also likely to do with religious and spiritual experiences. And I became deeply curious about it. And it, it certainly didn't fit with anything that I'd been taught as a radical behaviorist, uh, you know, who prioritizes interest in behavior per se, because by the very nature of these experiences, they couldn't be validated 
in the third person. So, <laughs> so it at once put me on very squishy grounds scientifically, but it really opened up this curiosity about the nature of what these experiences were and what their potential value was to humankind. And so it got me reading comparative religion texts and meditation texts and and just deepen my curiosity in this. And then I became reacquainted with this older literature on psychedelics, which, of course, claimed to produce effects of this type. So where I, where I was coming into this was as rather much a skeptic. I really wondered whether the um, excitement of the proponents of psychedelics, the psychedelic enthusiasts, were, were trustworthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trained as a skeptic, right? Yep. Uh, but because, you know, my career had been clinical pharmacology and I had been doing a lot of work with mood-altering drugs... I was in kind of a unique position to address those kinds of questions. So back in the late uh, 1990s, I put in a protocol to our IRB and our FDA to... Sorry, just, just IRB, that, uh, that's your ethics board. Yeah, that's, the, that's our local ethics board. And the FDA is our Food and Drug Administration. Mm-hmm. And both those groups need to be on board as well as our drug enforcement administration before any study with a schedule one compound such as psilocybin can be launched. And you know the history, these drugs had been so demonized because of what happened in the 1960s that almost all research, certainly in the United States, had been shut down for a period of decades, at least with studies involving healthy volunteers who were otherwise drug naive. And that was the population I wanted to study. I didn't want to study enthusiasts or people who had already used psychedelics because, you know, would have selection bias issues there. And so we designed a study in which we compared a high dose of psilocybin with a high dose of methylphenidate, Ritalin, under fairly deeply blinded conditions. We had to tell people that among the drugs that they would receive would be a dose of psilocybin. But we also, they they had two or three sessions and we also told them they could receive up to, I think it was 13 different mood-altering compounds. And these were all drug-naive people. So they didn't know quite what to expect. And we used conditions in this study that... uh, were really based on those that have been optimized for studying psychedelics back in the 1950s and 60s. So a highly supported environment, but not only were the participants blinded to the drug conditions, so were the guides, so were their clinical guides. So it's as blinded as we could get it. And I went into the study actually uh, relatively... Well, very curious and agnostic about what the outcome might be. I was uh, very impressed with meditation as a way of investigating the nature of mind and the nature of altered states of consciousness and wasn't at all convinced that uh, psychedelics were going to add 
too much more to what I thought was already available. Well, I have to say I was uh, I was really surprised. Um, well, before we come on to the results, so just talk me through some of the practicalities. So here you are, you know, you, you decide you're going to do something which has not been done in the States for 40 years. I mean, how easy was it? to get the drug, to get the ethics, to get the volunteers? <laughs> well, well, it, it was a challenge on, on a number of different levels. So, so one is that just within the pharmacology, scientific, uh, psychiatric community, this w- was a very unusual kind of request to be making. And, and there were those that immediately were suspicious of what motives might have driven me to even be interested in this. <laughs> so, so even being interested in this was in some ways judged, at least by some of my colleagues, negatively. I can remember when I spoke at a, a seminar, we have a regular behavioral pharmacology seminar in our unit. And this is a well-established unit mm-hmm. doing, you know, drugs. And I said, geez, you know, we're going to undertake a study with psilocybin. And I, I had a number of my close colleagues just say, well, why would you want to do that? Or isn't that dangerous? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, yeah, Roland, what what are you thinking? And so on part of many, it was just, it was kind of bafflement. And uh, it didn't help when I told them, well, I'd taken up meditation. And, I was, <laughs> and then I thought I really had gone off a, a, yeah. a deep end. Um the IRB, um, so I, what I have to say is I'm really proud of Johns Hopkins for actually having approved this protocol, but it was not easily done. It was no, no means an easy lift. It was the most difficult protocol I've ever had reviewed and approved through Hopkins. Um, How long did it take? Because it took me a year to get my, uh, my depre- first depression one through. I had to go back three times to the ethics committee. I mean, how did how long did it take you? It probably it probably took uh, in all a year, and we had some false starts. We got started at one point and then got shut down because oh. someone new and came onto the IRB and got them so <sighs> excited and upset that they terminated the protocols and insisted that it be sent out for re-review. Uh, so. It was a process, and they were skeptical. It got bounced up to the dean and the managing attorney's office at, mm-hmm, at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. So it really went through this political channel. But the pride I take in Hopkins is that ultimately it's a scientifically driven mm. organization that, that did the risk-benefit ratio and mm-hmm. decided that on balance – this study could proceed. Uh, I was to report after the first five volunteers. They want they were going right. to pay a lot of attention mm-hmm. to any potential adverse effects, and so we went uh, forward. FDA actually, I went through relatively uh, smoothly. the I, The IRB was the heavier lift of the of the mm-hmm. two, but we got got that approval. And then we initiated the study, and I and we did so very cautiously because I I, I was fearful that this would be picked up by the media mm-hmm. and blown way out of proportion and would get shut down before we even 
really collected any data. So we didn't uh, speak with any media about the study until it was published, and it was published in your journey. Uh, well, no, it was published in Psychopharmacology, actually, the first yeah. first paper. But the, sec- the follow-up was published mm-hmm. in your journal. Um, the results, actually, to me, were astonishing. So much so that I, I don't think I, I would have... Well, I, I didn't uh, predict the kinds of outcome measures that we ended up starting to use that turned out to be the most interesting. The study was designed to, as a flat-out comparison between methylphenidate, this uh, Ritalin, and psilocybin. And it was done in such a way that if nothing particularly interesting or novel arose from it with respect to psilocybin, it could just be published as a straight-out comparative pharmacology abuse liability Mm -hmm. study. That's the approach we took, although we included measures that had been used in the psychology of religion to measure and to assess some of these transcendent-like experiences. And, you know, the bottom line was that people ended up having these remarkable experiences after taking uh, psilocybin. They, they really met all these a priori criteria for uh, looking very much like a classic transcendent or mm-hmm. mystical mm-hmm. type experience. But those experiences resolved by the end of the session. The, the thing that really stuck with me and that was most astonishing to me is the way the study was designed. We would run the sessions and then two months later, people would have a second session. So we were, I was interviewing them two months after the session. And so I remember asking people, so what was that experience like? And this is very early on and people saying, you know, that was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. I thought, what? Never had I heard someone two months Mm -hmm. later Mm -hmm. saying, wow, that experience, one of the most meaningful of my life. I think about it all the time. And (laughs) so my first response was, well, I wonder what kind of life experiences this person Mm -hmm. has. Maybe they're much more (laughs) limited and dull than I thought, although these were, by and large, high-functioning professionals. But then they compared it to, say, the birth of a firstborn child or the death of a parent, uh, you mm-hmm. know, so very credible experiences that in my experience would just map on directly to what I would say is among the most meaningful. And they, they say it's, it's like that. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is, this is something unlike mm-hmm. any other class of drugs that I've ever looked at what the heck is going on here? What are the implications in terms of understanding these drugs, meditation, spiritual experience, the nature of transformative effects? I mean, this really looks like William James and conversion experiences and other kinds of things that have been described to occur naturally in humans. And and that's what I think now we have, is we have a a model system for occasioning these kinds of experiences for which we are biologically predisposed, we're wired yep. for, and that 
psychedelics under these kind of optimized conditions just turn up the gain in the probability that one will have a full-blown experience of this type. And so now this, uh, the excitement, uh, as far as I'm concerned, scientifically for the science of psychedelics is now we can deconstruct this at any number of levels, be it neurobiologically or phenomenologically or, you know, looking at persistent effects. But what is it that can account for these experiences? And then what are they good for? They really do appear to be able to engender radical behavior change and sometimes a, a, a altered sense of reality or sense of self. And so then the therapeutic applications come immediately to mind. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. We'll, we'll, come, to, we'll come to that in a minute, but I do remember vividly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, by the way, when Roland talks about my journal, he's talking about the Journal of Psychopharmacology, which I edit, but I don't own. Um, and I remember you submitting your paper and with, with the long-lasting effects. I think it was one or two years you mm-hmm. now. That struck me as, as, like you, I've given a lot of different drugs to different people, but but never found a drug which had an effect, an effect over over many years as as you found, and uh, and that you know was one of the reasons we we started getting interested about the brain mechanisms of psychedelics because clearly you were discovering something that was likely to be in the brain and likely to be enduring. Well, that was the follow up study to our. Uh... Uh, original study where we're just following that up and trying to trace back the nature of the, you know, what accounted for that experience. And, and so one of the interesting things that came out of that publication is that the, the intensity of the so-called mystical experience, which is, uh, is definable (laughs) and it doesn't imply supernatural or non-rational levels of explanation, but the intensity of that experience predicts meaning and uh, spiritual significance a year later. So there's something about the phenomenology of that that is correlative, if not determinative in part Mm -hmm. of those uh, attribution of of long-term positive effects. Mm -hmm. And you've gone on subsequently. You've set up this center for psychedelic research at John Hopkins to look at psychedelics and consciousness, I think. Yes. And you've also done clinical trials. So, so tell us about both of those. <laughs> yeah, so, we, uh, so over the last 20 years, we've done now quite a series of studies. And in Healthy Volunteers, we continued to do the type of research that was started with that methylphenidate study. We've done dose effects with... Uh, psilocybin and healthy volunteers. We've uh, studied the effects of psilocybin in people who are starting and initiating a meditation practice and and showing that there are 
long-term trait changes in a variety of characteristics, which is, is very interesting. And, and, you know, it's, I mean, it really quite unprecedented. Uh, we don't have many interventions in humans at all that can reliably change trait characteristics of people. We've also studied uh, psilocybin in long-term meditators, and this just reflects my personal interest in meditation practice. And uh, we have an ongoing study that uh, is just wrapping up of psilocybin in religious clergy. That's one domain of study. Actually, that study is so remarkable. You have to tell us a bit more about that. Tell us about the the priest study, because I've sort of followed it, obviously, through snippets at meetings, but most people won't won't even have considered this construct. Yeah, let's see. Well, we're doing this study jointly with NYU, and we've promised not to talk in any depth about results until we we're ready to no. publish. But long story short, the types of effects that clergy, these are hallucinogen-naive clergy, experience, you know, look very similar to those that are occasioned in healthy uh, volunteers. And then the core question is then what, what's the meaning of those experience to them mm. who have are, mm. already dedicated their life to, to clerical responsibilities and to advancing ethics and morality and, and spiritual traditions. So you've redone the Marsh Chapel experiment? Uh, in clergy, yeah, yeah. In the Marsh Chapel, but the... And the advantage of what we have done is we've done that in independent subjects independently. The The original uh-huh. Good Friday experiment was done as a group. So there's a potential yep. for group confound there. But, you know, the, yep. the inferences from that initial study seem to be right right on. Yeah. Well, we look forward to that being published. And I'm very, I'm sure Jay Psychopharm will be quite happy. But you, you've gone on to do therapeutic trials as well. So tell us about those. Please. Yeah, so we've done a series of therapeutic trials. And then as you alluded to, just this last year, we were very grateful to receive significant philanthropic support to establish the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness uh, Research, which has among its... Uh, its goals, a series of therapeutic studies. The first therapeutic study we undertook was in cancer patients who were psychologically distressed because of a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. So these are people with significant anxiety or depression, many of them having been or between treatments for a serious cancer condition. And there, this was a double-blinded crossover design and had some controls to to control as best we could expectancy effects both on part of the volunteers and the guides. We showed uh, very significant large decreases in both depression and anxiety after psilocybin sessions that were sustained out to six months. And the NYU group that also ran a similar study has recently done a five-year follow-up and showing that many of these effects are are sustained out to then. So large, large effects on depression, anxiety in that population. Matt Johnson, who I think you'll talk to in a separate 
Yes, I will. has done some nice work showing that psilocybin has efficacy in treatment of cigarette smoking addiction. Mm. We have just completed a study that we've submitted for publication of uh, psilocybin in major depressive disorder. This And this really follows on the study that you and Robin Carhart-Harris mm. did in depression, although in this case mm. we have a a delayed treatment uh, control. So we have a control showing, yeah, once again, the, you know, large, large effects and enduring effects. Um, the new center is going to undertake a variety of studies with uh, different therapeutic targets. So, uh, so those include anorexia nervosa, early Alzheimer's, uh, or depression associated with uh, uh, either mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease. We have on the drawing board uh, studies of opiate use disorder, uh, alcohol use disorder associated with depression, PTSD, post-traumatic Lyme disease uh, syndrome. And then we have some studies in healthy volunteers and That'll keep you busy, Roland. You, you better make sure it, you better make sure you've found a treatment for aging if you're going to do all those. <laughs> Let me say, I, you know, I'm blessed with having very talented colleagues here at Johns Hopkins. So Matt Johnson, who was recently promoted to full professor and has been oh, excellent, excellent. with us for a long time, is very capable. Fred Barrett is a great neuroimager, cognitive neuroscientist, and he's leading up a whole series of studies. We have a we have a good team put together, and I, what I would hope is this whole program of research will uh, will endure. Well, I certainly hope it does too, because it's uh, it's it's been land breaking, groundbreaking, land leading, and also hopefully continuing to do that. I, I just we're going to have to finish quite soon, but I wanted to just there are a couple of specific questions, you know, that that your research raised. I mean, one one is this overlap between meditation and the psychedelic experience, because it's clearly not they're not identical, but they, they there's clearly an overlap. And I just wondered what your interpretation of the nature of that overlap was. I think it's it's really interesting. I so if I think about meditation, and, and of course, you know, there are many different forms of meditation, and there are different ways of practicing meditation. But for me, the core feature of meditation is that that one actually starts to investigate and learn about the very nature of mind. They learn that there are thoughts and emotions that arise and yet you don't have to identify with those. And and it, it takes practice and it's frustrating to do, but that comes as rather a profound insight. It's a it's de-identification with thoughts mm-hmm. and emotions and, and being able to relax into, you know, a larger sense of of knowing. And that's a core kind of feature of what I think is learned in nature of mind and meditation. Mm. I I think that psilocybin is in some ways quite similar to that. One one of the things that we prepare people to do prior to a psilocybin session, if they're if they're um, psychedelic naive is just that, to not identify with whatever it is that comes up in mind, to recognize that 
their objects of consciousness, their ideas, their thoughts, their visions that are going to rise in consciousness, we will encourage them in the belief that there's nothing in consciousness that can harm them. Mm. What we are encouraging them to be is deeply curious about the nature of those experiences. And the interesting piece of that is that that can become incredibly empowering. If someone can sit with what they may initially think of as the most threatening thought that they could come up with, and that would be, oh, if it's an image of a demon that's going to destroy them, or if it's the contemplation of their own death or their own morality, if they, if they can sit with that and be interested in that, to be curious about it without reacting to it, people come out of that experience empowered in a way that they never mm. believed possible before. And I think that's the kind of thing that happens with people struggling with death anxiety. Uh, it doesn't mean that it erases concern about death, but it takes away the emotional component of it and they can rest in equipoise with it. Likewise, in the addictions, if someone really looks at the nature of craving, they realize well, that's a feeling. It's, it's a real feeling. It will come and go. And then the question is, am I up to the task to be curious about it and choose whether or not to act on it? And, we're, and that's exactly what we're asking them to do in psilocybin sessions. And so there's some sense that people come out of these sessions with of having been empowered to, uh, I think confront is not the right word, to tolerate life circumstances in a way they never thought possible before. I mean, if, if, if you're fused with identity as an addict, as a smoker, I've mm, tried mm. to quit smoking many times and failed. And you all of a sudden see that you have agency to choose. You're in a very different situation. And so that may account for what we might hope to be the transdiagnostic efficacy of uh, psychedelic mm -hmm. across a range of psychedelic, a, a range of psychiatric conditions yeah. that remains to be seen and tested. Well, I hope uh, that you and I are around in a few years' time to celebrate the uh, those discoveries and those explanations. <laughs> but before I let you, I plan to be <laughs> good for you. Well, I ho I'm hoping to be too. Um, I just want to. There's one one last thing that I have to we have to talk about, which is which is why I started off with your history of um, of research on dependence and uh, and addiction and value uh, of drugs. Most people, even many scientists assume that psychedelics are addictive because why else would they be controlled drugs? In fact, you know, it's common, commonplace for people to say, oh, well, they've got to be Schedule One because they're addictive, but they're not addictive. You know, to my, to my mind, that's one of the greatest either deliberate or accidental kind of misinterpretations of, of drug, drug effects that there's ever been, and it's been hugely deleterious to the field. And I, I just, given that you're the world expert on dependence, can you say categorically that I'm right, that they're not dependence-producing? Yeah, yeah, categorically, you're right. I mean, they, they're not dependence-producing drugs. They don't result in 
uncontrollable habitual self-administration. Animals don't self-administer them. They're, you know, the, the neurobiological underpinnings of them are not those that are shared in common by most abused Quite. substances. So at some point, well, we'll, uh, we'll have to go back to the FDA together and ask them to re, or the DEA, and ask them to reclassify these drugs, won't we? But maybe you're doing that already, Ronan. You know, there are you know, several groups now, Compass Pathways being one in, in the UK and USONA Institute in the United States that are pursuing therapeutic indications for psilocybin for either treatment-resistant depression or major depressive disorder. If those trials turn out to be positive, which I suspect is likely to be true given the kinds of observations you've made at Imperial and we, we've made, on, in depression, then at least within the United States system, they have a medical application and, and so the drugs have to move out of Schedule 1. And so it's a, a question of proving their efficacy uh, that becomes key to rescheduling them. Well, hopefully in a few years we'll know categorically. And uh, Roland, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Keep up the good work, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in the flesh at some point when this virus is over. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this podcast. Yeah, good to spend time with Cheers. you, David. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I have. It's a, a remarkable story of someone who has become a world leader in the study of drugs of abuse, and now is actually the world leader in the study of psychedelic drugs in terms of therapeutic value and also the understanding of the nature of consciousness. And it's very reassuring that he was able to tell us at the very end that psychedelics are not addictive. And that is a challenge that we, all of us who work in this field, face on a daily basis from individuals who aren't prepared to know the truth or to find out the truth about these drugs. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it. Please follow me on Twitter. Please follow Drug Science on Twitter. And ideally, please become a member of the Drug Science community because Drug Science is a charity that relies on donations from people like you. And if you sign up to the community, then you'll get opportunities to attend Drug Science meetings, get our publications in advance, and most importantly, support our important work in terms of delivering the truth about drugs to the general public. Thank you for listening. <laughs>